We're in the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. Just kind of getting started on all this. An incredible book, so much to say. Some people believe that the that the uh, if you read the end of the book, you can read the book and call it good. And and I, and I think that's fine. But I I think I think you do you cheat yourself out of a lot of really good things to read. But it's also been said that if you read the front of the book, that you understand and and see and get a feel for what the book is really all about. And I think this prologue, the first eighteen verses of chapter one, really gives us this this really full description of what John is going to be telling us over and over again in this book. We have 20 chapters to go through, so we're going to be in this for quite a while. I'm going to go ahead and start with verse 1, as if that's probably no surprise, Um, although I'm going to cover verses 6 through 9 this morning. I'm going to read to you from the New American Standard 2020 edition. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man, kind. I got a hyphen there, excuse me. The light was the life of mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. A man came, one sent from God, and his name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And this was the true light that coming into the world enlightens every person. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not accept him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so, Father, we pray that you'd speak to our hearts this morning as we look at this incredible passage, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might receive from you that which you have for us. We thank you, Lord, for this time that we've had to worship you. And we ask, Lord, that we would continue our hearts of worship as we hear your word And as we allow your spirit to speak to us and to yield to the voice of your spirit this morning. So give us understanding, give us fresh insight. Lord, we pray that even in this passage that you would revive our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So we have, this is to me fascinating because you have this incredible, incredible description of the first really the first two verses uh, of this theological description of who Jesus is. Describing part of the Godhood, or Godhead, excuse me. 
And, and not only that he was before the beginning actually began, right? Existing in the past, currently existing in the past. That's what the grammar says. But that he was also the creator. And not, not anything that came into being uh, came into being without him creating it. Which means he cannot in and of himself be a created being. He exists before the creation. He exists from eternity past. And, and so not only was he preexistent, not only was he with the creator, but in him was life. And, and the life was the light of mankind. This idea of life and light interchanging, and we're going to see this again in, in this particular gospel, and I want to go into, into it even in more depth when we get into it later. But the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. It did not comprehend it. It did not overpower it. It did not subdue it. And so you have, uh, as John Scotus, and he was a 9th century Celtic Christian writer, he talks about the eagle being at the height of, of heavens in this, these first few verses and then coming down, swooping down from the height of the mountain into the, really the valleys of humanity when he gets to verse 6 when he said, a man came, one sent from God, and his name was John. And so as I thought about this, I thought, why in the world did he mention John? Now, you all know this is John the Baptist is who he's talking about here. You have this incredible theological and spiritual and, and, and uh, I'm going to use a big word, cosmological description of Jesus, whom we also know comes in the flesh, and why do you have this incredible description and then all of a sudden you start talking about a man? Why are we talking about John the Baptist all of a sudden? Now, this is where he's introduced in this gospel and he will come in and out of the story a few times until he's, he's put to death. And, and it puzzled me, to be honest with you. Why do you have this incredible description in the prologue of who Jesus is, and then this the short description of the forerunner. The short description of this man who was sent by God. And it, it struck me that although God in his existence lives in the in the heights of heaven. He comes down to earth, and he not only comes as a human, but he comes down to earth because he is intimately involved in the life of humanity. He doesn't just stay God in his ivory tower, if that makes sense. And, and, and this, this, this really is a relational gesture that, that John is saying without saying it directly. 
it's highly implied, but I think, I think it's clear here that you have this huge description of who God is, and then all of a sudden you have this man who was sent from God. Now, as I studied this passage, and I must have, I must have, I've got like three sermons out of this. And so we're going to take a break after I'm done with this first one, and then we'll do some more worship, and then we'll, we'll do, no, we won't, I'm just kidding, all right. But there really is, I could really have gone in, 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 in a couple of different ways on this, but I, I'm, what I'm trying to do this morning is just kind of do a little bit of the bird's eye view of what these three short verses are really talking about, rather than, than hammering in on either the light and the life, or hammering in on John the Baptist, although we are going to talk about him. And we'll talk about him again. But it really struck me here in the text that said there was a man that was sent from God. That is the Greek word apostolos. The sending out. The, a few of the early fathers, Origen being one, Chris, uh, John Chrysostom being another, I think Augustine being a third. Uh, no, it was, anyway, uh, they saw John the Baptist not only as a prophet, but they also saw him as an apostle. Why? Because he was one who was sent. And the word apostle literally means one who was sent. So I'll let you work with that. I'm just throwing, that's out there for that's, uh, extra credit, if you will. I'll just throw that out there for you. Remember way, way back a while ago when we did the study in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, where we talked about lowercase apostles and uppercase apostles, right? Lowercase prophets, uppercase prophets, uh, and so on and so forth. But I, I just I wanted to throw that out there to you because I found it interesting how they interpreted this particular passage, the fact that God sent John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is just a fascinating individual. And his life was nothing more than a miracle. He, he was born to parents who were older. His mom had been barren, Elizabeth. His father was a priest, Levite. And, of course, when Gabriel gave the birth announcement to Levite, he was in the temple offering incense. It was his turn to do it. And, of course, because he doubted what happened. You remember the story? He wasn't able to speak until after John the Baptist was born. And as I love to say, there was probably some great peace in that household, except for maybe within the heart of Zacharias, his father. But when Gabriel tells Zacharias that that they're going to have a son, this fascinates me because in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, he says that John the Baptist will be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. And in, in, in then in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, it says that he will have the spirit and power of Elijah. Which really takes us to the book of Malachi with Elijah coming before the great and, and dreadful day of the Lord. Um, I don't have time to trace that down for you this morning. But then we read further in the book of Luke. At about the time that Mary, uh, excuse me, Elizabeth... John the Baptist's mother, you're all with me, right? Okay. At about the time that Elizabeth was about six to seven months pregnant, Mary is visited by Gabriel, and she is told that she is going to bear the Messiah. So for of all, I don't, this never made sense, but it doesn't matter. But 
uh, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. They were cousins. And, and when Mary arrives at Elizabeth's house, Elizabeth is happy and, and she's saying, how is it that the, the mother of my Lord would come and visit me? And the interesting thing about this is, is, is that when she said this, John the Baptist, who was in the womb, six to seven months, he's in the womb, and what does he start doing? It says, when Elizabeth heard the voice of Mary, John, the, there's the connection between mother and baby here. I never really caught that. It didn't say John heard the voice. It said Elizabeth heard the voice. When Elizabeth heard the voice, John the Baptist starts leaping for joy in the womb. Now think about that a second. John the Baptist is in the womb. Somehow he received something, probably from the Holy Spirit, because later in, in, in uh, Luke chapter 1, it says, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 44, and then in verse 40, 40, 41 and 44, it says that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit at that moment. Now, if Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, was not also John the Baptist filled with the Holy Spirit? I think so. Again, back to Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 15. Gabriel tells Zacharias, John the Baptist is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. And Elizabeth explains that when, when, when I heard your voice, the baby leaped for joy. So in the womb, John the Baptist could receive information somehow in some fashion, in some way, and then respond to it. Does that not sound like somebody who is alive? I'll just leave that for you. I think that sounds like somebody who's alive. What fascinates me even more, I guess we are going to talk more about John the Baptist than I anticipated. But what fascinates me even more about him and I have it in front of me. I want to turn to it anyway. Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verse 2. I'm going to skip the first verse. You can read it if you want later. But it says, While Annas and Caiaphas were the high priest." The word of God came to John, son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. <coughs> Excuse me. And he went into all the region around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. I'm going to keep going. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That's a quote out of the Septuagint from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 2 and following. But what really struck me, this, I, I, I never really saw this until I think, I think I read this yesterday. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. John says there was a man that was sent from God. We couple that with what Luke says 
is that the word of God came to John, son of Zacharias, while he was in the wilderness. And, and to me, when I read these things anymore, I start asking a lot of questions. I think, I think when we read the Bible, I think it's good to ask questions. What was John doing in the wilderness? How was it that the word of God came to him? Ever think of that? Was it audible? Was it one of those really just strong impressions that he had in some way, some shape, some form? Now remember, he's filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. It's possible, without going into a lot of detail, he might have been a Nazarite. Remember, he did not eat or drink of any strong drink or any, any fruit of the vine his entire life. So it could have meant if he was a true Nazarite, he also had what? And in, in his 30s, he had very, 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 very long hair. Probably dreadlocks. Just to keep it manageable, right? Because part of the, number six, if you've read it, part of the Nazarite vow, no drinking of the fruit, no eating of the fruit of the vine. And you grew your hair out until that time that you fulfilled your vow. And then as a fulfillment of the vow, you were to shave your head. You were to offer it as an offering. You had it burnt as an offering to God. And then it even goes on to say, and then you may drink wine. So, so much for the idea of abstinence. Okay, but anyway, I just had to throw that in just for fun. It could have been that John was a... A Nazarite. It could have been that he lived in the desert. Remember, his parents were older. They may have passed fairly early in his life. It could have been that he lived in the desert with a community known as the Essenes. E-S-S-E-N-E, if you want to write it down. By the way, there was also a quarter, a section in Jerusalem known as the Essene Quarter. Just like in New Orleans, there's a section known as the French Quarter. Okay, but that's different. Anyway, um, how was it that the word of God came to him? See, I, I read that, and it fascinates me. It just, when I read that, it, just, it was like it riveted right through me. It was like, wow. When did he know that he was a forerunner? Did Zacharias teach him? Did Elizabeth teach him? Was he just waiting for the right time? I don't know. Remember, Paul tells Timothy, in the fullness of time, the Messiah came. And, and, and God calls him to be the forerunner of himself. God calls him to be the forerunner of himself, to be the forerunner of the Messiah. It really, Cyril of Alexandria talked about this where it really could have been in, in concert with, with Moses, the law of Moses, uh, establishing everything by two or three witnesses. And this idea of the forerunner was a very common thing. When a, when a king would go through a land, he would send out his his people before him, right? And they would announce to everyone that the king was coming, that you had to get ready for the king. 
And that's exactly the ministry that John the Baptist was doing with, with every mountain laid low and every valley filled in. And he did that in a spiritual way by taking people into the Jordan and having them confess their sins and baptizing them for the remission of their sins, uh, fulfilling John's baptism. Which, by the way, without this is a side trip, but Acts 19, we see that those who were baptized according to John's baptism were baptized again in the name of Jesus later on. So we have this person who was the apostolos of the Messiah, the one who was sent, the one who heard the word of the Lord in the wilderness. And that fascinates me even more because he did not hear the word of the Lord in the city of Jerusalem or Damascus or Caesarea Philippi or Capernaum. But he heard it in the wilderness. The Lord went outside of the camp. If you feel like you're kind of outside from the camp of the world, you're probably in very, very good company. And often it is, I think, we recognize that there is a difference between them and us, and we feel like outsiders. And often we, we I think at times we, we're, we're tempted to try to kind of fit in better. But here, and as I, as I thought about this through the week, I, I thought, and I can't remember who wrote this, and I'm going to botch it, but you probably haven't ever read it before, so you're not going to know the difference, all right? But, but the thing is, I, how much more glorious it is to stand before God than it is to stand before man. And that when God wanted to do a work, he reached outside the established order and went out to the desert, out to the wilderness, out to some long-haired, hippie-looking dude who wore camel's clothing and ate locusts and honey, for goodness sake. Which, by the way, is kosher. But I'll let you run that one down. What an incredible sense of dedication he had. He was an ascetic. Now, later on, they'll say, well, John was an ascetic. He didn't eat nor drink. So he must have had a demon. But Jesus ate and drank, and they called him what? You remember? A wine-bibber. I love that term. I don't know why I do. A wine-bibber and a glutton. That's what they called Jesus. Some people are just not happy either way. They're just not happy either way. And so some, and as I thought about that, you know, sometimes we are casting our pearls before swine. Good, I got some of you thinking. Because some people are not happy either way, and we try to appease people. And I've heard it over and over, and we, oh, we can't do it. We can't do this, we can't do that, and we can't do this because it's not a good witness, and we gotta, we gotta lead them to the, to the faith. Well, they don't want to walk with Jesus anyway. Some people are just not happy. It's unfortunate, and really, it even flies, in, if you will, in the face a little bit. What we're looking at here this morning, if I finally get off this first verse. But it says he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. Now, this is a little bit of a tongue twister, 
grammatically in the Greek. All might believe through him. Who's the him in this verse? It said he came, right? He came as a witness. Who's the he in this verse? John. To testify about the light. Who's the light? The word. Okay, we're staying in the context, but also we know it's Jesus. That all might believe through him. Who's the him? If you look at the grammar and how it is structured, the him is a pronoun that matches what? The word light. So where it says, when it says, so that all might believe through him, it's referring to Jesus, not John the Baptist. Grammatically, it, it, it makes much more sense that way. Some of you are still chewing on that one. Okay. Uh, ask me later. How's that? <laughs> that all might believe. Now, it took me a while because I was like, okay, where do I want to go with this this morning? Besides talk about a little bit about John the Baptist. Bless you. That all might believe. And that became a, like a really dim red light that started getting brighter and brighter as I kept reading it over and over. That all might believe. John uses this word believe 96 times in his gospel. It's the first time he uses it. So we're going to get the opportunity, bless you, we're going to get the opportunity to talk about this over and over again, like 96 times worth. Because I think it's so important. Maybe we won't go every 96 times. Now, this particular word, all might believe, or the phrase, might believe, okay? The phrase might believe is one word in the Greek, all right? It means to entrust oneself in complete confidence to another. To entrust oneself in complete confidence to another. It's in the Aorist tense. Aorist tense is often translated past tense, right? But it doesn't mean past tense in the Greek. There is no past tense in the Greek. But it refers to the snapshot. The snapshot. In other words, if you got out your cell phone, most of you have one, and you took a selfie, that would be a picture of you right at the very second that you took that picture, right? And then, after the picture is taken, let's say you comb your hair or you mess up your hair or you dye your hair or whatever, or take your glasses off or put them back on, right? You look different than the picture. The snapshot, the photo, the selfie, that's what the arrowist tense really tries to convey, what it was like at that very second, all right? So then, often translated in the English past tense. We don't have an equivalent to eros in the English, at least not in verb tenses. And, and to enter into the faith, to enter into the kingdom of God, we're going to talk about this again and again as well, but to be as what Jesus described in the book of John, chapter 3, to be born again, to be born of the Spirit, to be born from above, 
it requires that we believe and trust because belief and trust go hand in hand. In fact, it, 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 part of this word could be translated trust, this word belief. If we trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, then we are born again. And, and that is what this is really talking about here in this particular passage, to testify. John came to testify. John came as a witness. John came, the word witness is the, from the Greek word martus. He came to be the one who would give testimony. And martus, we get the English word martyr. In other words, one who was so convinced of that which he had seen, that which he had experienced, that if need be, he would be willing to give his life to stand upon the testimony that he was giving. And John, of course, we know did give his life. Uh, he died as a martyr. And he would come to testify, to be a witness, uh, to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. And then it underscores this idea that he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Because the thing is, the thing is, is, is we often get enamored. Now, I'm going to get back to this thing about belief, so I haven't, I'm not done there yet, all right? But I'm just going to jump ahead and then jump back. But it was important that, that we read in verse 8, that he came to testify about the light. It wasn't the light. Because often it is we get enamored with the instrument. We also get very angry with the instrument. You know the, me- the, word, the, the, uh, the saying, don't kill the messenger? Right? Somebody comes and brings you bad news, but they had nothing to do with the bad news that occurred, and, and so you want to take it out on them, and they t- say to you, hey, don't kill the messenger. You know, often it is, at least with me, I appreciate the sound of a very nice acoustic guitar. I probably appreciate the sound of the guitar more than I appreciate whoever it is that's playing it. And recognizing that John did not want to be recognized above the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the musician playing the instrument. And so that he came to testify about the, uh, the, the light so that all might believe through him. All might believe through the light, him, Jesus Christ. So we enter into the faith through belief. We continue in the faith through belief. How is your belief informed today? What type of belief do you have? I, I love the story in Isaiah, and I'm not going to take, we're almost out of time anyway, but I, I'm not going to take a lot of time on, on, on this, but in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah 7, 8, and 9 is known as the book of Emmanuel because it, it's it's. In Isaiah's work, it's some of the first prophecies about the Messiah. 
and declaring God with us. The name Emmanuel literally means God with us. And it's the story of, of Ahab who is afraid because the Assyrians have already ransacked the northern kingdom. Ahab is the king of the southern kingdom. But the Assyrians came in and they took over the northern kingdom. They did it so easily. They thought, well, let's go ahead and take over the southern kingdom too while we're at it, while we're down here. And so he is afraid, and so he wants to get into an alliance with the king of, of, uh, of Egypt and also with the king of Syria. And he's discussing this with the prophet Isaiah, and the prophet says to him, if you will not believe, surely you will not be established. If you will not believe, surely you will not be established. And so as I thought about this idea of belief, we believe, we trust in Christ for our salvation, therefore we enter into the kingdom of God, and as we continue into the, in the kingdom of God, we do so based on trust. We do so based on belief. Because if we go into these situations where we do not believe, surely you will not be established. I think, that, I think that's universal. I want to be delicate, but I also want to be... I also want to speak the truth in love. This is a difficult time. This is a very confusing time. And I've talked to a lot of Christians, and not so much lately, which I feel like God's given me a respite. But I, I, I've talked to a lot of Christians that are just so angry and upset over everything and anything, particularly politically. Do you really trust in any of the parties? Seriously? Any of them? Some trust in horses, some trust in, 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 in riches. The prophet said, we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And if we are truly members of another kingdom, and if we have been told by our king to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I would love to see what would happen if the church would stop complaining on Facebook and spend that time in prayer. I really would. And see what God does. Humanity from the time of the church forward has gone through darker days than these. And the church of Jesus Christ has survived. And the church of Jesus Christ will continue because Jesus told us in the gospel of Matthew that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
But if you do not believe, surely you will not be established. And again, if, if you need to complain, uh, it, there's a biblical word for it. it. It's a biblical process. It's called the lament. Complain to the Father. Put it out there before him. Tell him your woes. Lay these things at the feet of the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ. Belief is hard, isn't it? <laughs> Nobody really wanted to, sh- a few of you wanted to shake your head. <laughs> to me, is it, to step out on faith is not an easy thing to do. To trust in the Lord God is not an easy thing to do. Especially when you're hearing all the voices that are telling you to do something else. Which sometimes the easiest thing to do is to turn the television off. Turn the internet off. And, 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 and whatever it is that you set your heart on. I'm thinking Philippians 4. Whatever is, you're going to have to quote it because I can't, it, it just went in and out of my mind so fast. Whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, uh, whatever is praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Thank you. How's that for an alternative? Because if you don't believe, you're not going to be established. doesn't mean you can lose your salvation. But it says you're not going to be established. And and belief is hard. Matthew 9. Matthew 9, real quick, the story of the the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, goes up to the mountain. He's transfigured. His glory is revealed. He unveils his incredible glory in, in front of the three of them. The Father speaks. Moses and Elijah show up. It's this incredible thing that I hope somebody got on YouTube for us one of these days. And took, took, a, took a, a video of it. He comes down the mountain. He comes down the mountain. And the other nine disciples are arguing with the, with the scribes. And it's over this, this kid that um, his father had brought to the disciples. And they couldn't heal him. He was throwing himself in the fire. He had a demon. And, 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 uh, and Jesus says to the father, if you believe, all things are possible. Just believe. Because, you know, this father is there. The disciples can't heal this kid. So he's starting to feel pretty discouraged, wouldn't you? But finally, Jesus shows up. It says when Jesus showed up, the crowd ran to him. So there's some insight there. So Jesus tells him, if you believe, all things are possible. And I love this response that the man gave to Jesus. He says, immediately, it says in verse, uh, verse 24 of chapter 9 of Mark, immediately the father of the fa- a child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you see the tension in that? Do you see the struggle in that? Do you see... Yes, I have faith. Oh, no, I don't. Yes, I have faith. Oh, no, 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 I don't. Yes, I want to believe. Lord, help my unbelief. 
Because the, at those times, sometimes when you feel like your faith is really being pressed, there's a temptation to say this is useless. What does your belief consist of? We're going to be asking this again and again. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Matthew 16, Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asked them, who is it that people say that I am? And they said, well, some think you're John the Baptist. Some think you're Eliza, come back from the dead. And then he gets it more direct when he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, in his very, probably is one of his finest moments in the, in the earthly ministry with Jesus, says to him, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. Recognizing also what? His Messiahship, but also what? His deity. His deity. So they understood that. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you believe is the Holy Spirit? And how does that belief inform your life? Who do you say that Jesus is? How does that belief inform your life? When you watch the news, God help you. When you hear things or talk about things, You have these. What gets me is these discussions when you when you talk to people and they have such a sense of conviction about things that I don't believe are correct. That's that's a that's a difficult one to navigate. But how does your belief in the Lord Jesus Christ inform how you live today? I'm going to finish, but so we're not going to get to verse 9. Luke 3 tells us again that John heard the word of the Lord in the wilderness. What was he doing in the wilderness? How did he hear the word of the Lord? Was he expecting? Was he on standby? Was he waiting As the Psalms talk about, was he waiting before the Lord? Was he waiting on the Lord? Did it come to him out of the blue? Like a burning bush in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 3 with Moses. Or did he have a posture of waiting? Did he have a posture of sitting? Did he have a posture of, I'm here, Lord, whenever it is that you're ready to give me that word. And it could have been all the above. Because I, and I said that to tie that back into your own lives. Sometimes we wait. Sometimes we wait and we wait and, and we sit and we are attentive to the Lord. But sometimes we get a word from the Lord that, that just almost comes to us out of the, the, out of the blue. Out of, out of, you know, all of a sudden you're walking around the wilderness and there's this bush that's caught fire. And, 
and, and yet it's not being consumed. And, you know, anything is worth the side trip in the wilderness, right? Really. What was he doing there? What are you doing here? How is the word of God coming to your life? And how does your belief in our Lord Jesus Christ inform how you live and inform your decisions and inform your attitudes and inform how you interpret the things that are going on in and around you today? So belief is multi-layered. 96 times in the Gospel of John. And we just did the first one. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him.